0: verse 26 let's pray as we approach God and his throne and his holy word Father we beg of you to bless us right now give us strength God to live lives and glorify you give us the strength God to love you and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. God, grant me, as a minister of the gospel, unworthy in myself to stand before you, apart from your son. Grant me, Lord, the words to speak. Grant me the ability to speak your truth boldly and with love. Bless us now as a nation that desperately needs you. God, bless us with repentance. God, we confess to you as your church our sin of indifference. We confess to you as your church our lack of love for the lost. We confess our need, Lord God, to turn, Lord, away from our love for ourselves and to love others, and to be willing to be hated by them for the cause of the gospel. God, please grant us the ability to be light and salt in a world that is so hostile to you at this moment. Please, God, raise up your church for Christ's name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 1, Bible opens up. Moses writes the first five books, and Moses records the history of creation. The Creator who has existed from all eternity, Isaiah 43.10, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God the God who existed from all eternity in perfect, harmonious fellowship as Father, Son, and then Holy Spirit. This God spoke and the universe leapt into existence. God created all things that exist in the heavens above and on the earth below, whether visible or invisible, Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Colossians chapter 1 says God created everything in existence. Moses records for us the creation account, what actually occurred. God created, God created and called a good. He would create and say, it is good. He would create and say, it is good. He would create and say, it is good. And God did something amazing, something that God didn't need to do. He wasn't lacking in anything. God had perfect fellowship from all eternity within the Godhead. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was Theon, face to face with God. And the word was God. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit existing in harmonious, perfect love forever. And God does something he didn't need to do in creation. He creates man in the imago dei, in the image of God. God speaks life into dust. God creates His image in the world to be His light, to represent Him in the world, to scatter the darkness image of God in the world, and God creates male and female, and the text says, Genesis 1:26 Then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the sea of the over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him. Listen. Male and female he created them. God created human beings in his likeness. We have the unique characteristic of being in the image of God. We fellowship with God. We reflect God's glory. We're unique. Our world today tells our children that they are nothing but the byproduct of an evolutionary process that did not have them in mind. They are purposeless protoplasm in a universe that does not care about them. All there is above us is only sky. This is what our children are told. The universe is time and chance, acting on matter. Popular books today tell us that we are nothing but stardust in a universe that is going nowhere. Lawrence Krauss, professor of physics at ASU, says that the future is miserable. The future is miserable. But God has a different story of history. And God has spoken to us in history. God actually took on flesh and he walked among us. We know what's true about God. We know what's true about us. We know what's true about the world because God has condescended in love to walk among the rebels, to tell us what he's like, to tell us about his love for the rebels. The amazing story of redemption, God becomes man to save us from our sins to save us from ourselves and God spoke in the incarnation about what he was like he told us about us and his purpose in creation he told us about his love for us Jesus says that he came to seek and save that which was lost Jesus comes into a world that is hostile towards him A world that so loves our sin, the Bible says, Jesus says, that we love darkness rather than the light. And despite this love for darkness, the light comes into the world to save us from ourselves. Jesus comes into the world and he speaks the truth. And the amazing thing is, is that Jesus in his ministry, you would think that our culture today hasn't read the New Testament. Jesus would confront sin. He never left people in their sin. He always came to them where they were at, and he called them to come from where they were to where he is. He told people to come and die and to rise with Him. He told them to take up their cross and to die to self and to come and be joined to Him. He told people in Luke 14 that if they love father, mother, sister, brother, wife, even their own life, more than Him, they are not worthy to be His disciple. And He says in Matthew chapter seven, many will come to me. In that day and say Lord didn't we do this and this and we did all these things in your name and Jesus says to them what depart from me you workers of lawlessness I never knew you Jesus amazingly would confront people where they were at and tell them to come from where they were to where he was and the amazing thing is is that sinners really love to hang out with them amen Jesus would speak the truth in such a way that people understood that he still loved them, he had love for them, and he called them to come to him for life, for forgiveness and peace. And while Jesus, who is the center point of all of history, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, amen, who is seated on his heavenly throne, who is the ruler, Revelation 1.5, of the kings of the earth, This Jesus, God in the flesh, speaks to us in Matthew 19. Go to that text. It is very important for us. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives to us his view on what is God's intention, God's creative decree over who we are as human beings in his image and over what God has laid down as the blueprint for all of the world in marriage. Look at the text, Matthew 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Listen to what God in the flesh says. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This past week, our highest courts spoke a lie to our world. They spoke a lie regarding what is love. Love did not win this week. The Supreme Court of our nation spoke a lie regarding what harmonious sexual relationships are, harmonious marriage relationships are. The Supreme Court of the United States of America and our president showed the greatest hatred to the homosexual community that can be imagined. After the decision was made and decreed that gay mirage is now a thing, our nation's capital, the highest place of authority in our nation, puffed their chest up before God and defied him to his face by celebrating this unholy thing. This lie spoken to our culture that men are not so unique and women are not so unique. Marriage is not so special or ordained by God. God does not get to tell us how to live and what to be. Our nation demonstrates something the scriptures clearly say. God says those who hate me love death and the amazing thing we face in our culture today is that we are the recipients of God's love and grace and compassion. This nation was really founded by in the state that it is today by Christians People that came over here to spread the glory of Christ, the good news of salvation and forgiveness, the kingdom of God. People founded this nation upon God and his word. They weren't perfect. It wasn't a utopia. But it was Christians who brought the message of the gospel to this place. And they acknowledged Christ as the authority, as the king. And we live in a time now where our nation says no to God and to his ways. Our nation has said to God, we defy you, God, to your face. And an amazing thing, if you look at what our nation has done before God, this, this thing before God and His face, they, they use as their symbol the very sign that God gave of His love and that He would never destroy the whole earth again with a flood. And they have adopted that symbol and the amazing thing is, is that symbol is supposed to speak to the world about God's mercy and his compassion, about the fact that he had promised to never destroy the whole earth again with a flood. And this movement that embraces the things that God has spoken so clearly about uses this symbol in a way of mockery to God. God had promised to never destroy the whole earth again with a flood. He did not promise not to bring judgment on the earth again it's important for us to recognize something about the world and and let me say this as I I begin to address this in detail let me say something very important that ought it really should go without saying as a Christian listen all of us are before God wretches the core song that represents Christians constantly is amazing grace Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is a song that's sung by Christians because it's true of all of us. The person who's preaching this message today is not haughty in myself about my righteousness. Let me go ahead and say it. I am not righteous before God in myself. I am worthy of condemnation before God. I have nothing to boast of before God. All I have to offer God in terms of my past, sexually, how I think about God, what I've done in my life, all that I have to offer Him at His feet are filthy rags. Nothing I have is glorifying to God outside of Christ. It's only because of what He's accomplished that I am redeemed and transformed. The Bible says that I am worthy of death. The wages of sin is death, but the glory of the gospel is the gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Life is only found in Christ. And the Bible does not teach us that when we embrace our sin and death that God is merciful in that place. He is merciful to those who turn from sin to embrace Christ and His work and are found in Him with His righteousness. That's the truth. But let me say something. We need to recognize that God has spoken clearly to this, and I wanted to show you something the Bible says very clearly about where we're at today, Romans chapter 1. Go to your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. This is where Paul systematically explains the gospel, and I want you to to see what the text says. It's very, very important because it has everything to do with what we're facing today in our culture as Christians and our need for light and salt to it. Look at the text in Romans chapter 1. If you look in verse 16 and on, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Listen closely. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Notice where Paul takes us, guys. He's taking us back in in his mind to the creation of the world. in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse... For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, listen, and animals, listen, and creeping things." Watch, watch what Paul's doing here. As a rabbi who knows his Bible, listen closely to this. This is really, really important and, and I think we can miss it often. In Romans chapter one, Paul as a rabbi takes us to the condition of all of us before God. He says, all of us, we know God. We, we suppress the truth of God. It's not a lack of light of God in the world it's the fact that we're just such rebels and when God pours into our lives his knowledge and his existence and his presence in the world Paul says we take that and we suppress that truth and we exchange God for idols and notice what he does here he says that what we do in as fallen people in the world is we reverse creation we flip it remember in Genesis chapter 1 What does God do? He speaks and everything leaps into existence. God creates what? The animals, the birds of the air, and the creeping things. That's the the creation account. And what Paul says here is that what we do in the fall is we suppress the truth of God. We say no to him. We say that we're wise and we're actually fools. Our thoughts become futile and we switch God the creator who made this space, this whole world. And what we do is we flip creation by instead of worshiping the creator, we worship those creeping things and birds of the air and the stuff that he's made. Creation gets flipped on its head. In Genesis, he made the stuff, and we say, as his image in the world, no to you, we'll take the stuff and we'll worship this above you. And in Genesis, God creates harmonious male and female relationships where they're together as harmonious as one flesh, male and female, together making the imago Dei, together as one. And what we do in the fall is instead of going to that, we flip creation again. And instead of worshiping God, creatures, instead of having harmonious relationships, male and female, we say no to God's ways. And instead of male to female, we say male to male, female to female. It's a reversal of creation. And our culture today says to God in His creative decree, I know that I'm a male but I say female. I know that I'm a female, but I say male. I know that you say male and female become one, but I will say male, male become one, and female, female become one. And God has laid down for us in his own world the blueprint for everything else. Think about this. When God creates the world, he's a master builder, agree? Anybody ever built anything? Not me. (laughs) I'm not good at it. Ask my wife. If something breaks, it's the men in the church who are hooking us up. Right, Ben? Yes? Okay. It's not happening. I love you, babe. And I'm glad she has mercy. But I I think I I do know something about things being built. When you watch homes get built, they spend a lot of time at the bottom for a reason. When they build a home, they start with the foundation before they do anything else. They don't just go out and start building stuff into the sand because they know that that won't last very long. And so people who build that know what they're doing, they start with the bottom and they build a foundation before they construct anything else. And God, when he created the world, he spoke into it, puts his image in the world, and the very first institution that he creates as the foundation of everything else he does in the world is male female harmonious relationships. That's the blueprint. And watch this. Listen closely. God says in the beginning, male and female become one. Imago Dei, he says this to them. As a foundation, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And our culture today says something to defy God. They say this, we will not have your ways about how marriage is supposed to be, We will deny what you say about our specific roles and we refuse your decree to be fruitful and multiply. Our nation says no to marriage and it says if you have babies and you don't want them, kill them. Our nation is asking God to his face for judgment. And you guys know that I am a hardcore, pipe-hitting (laughs) post-millennialist. I believe in the victory of Jesus in history. The Bible tells us something about the kingdom of the Messiah in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Isaiah 9, that his kingdom will last forever, that it comes at a particular time and it expands and it has victory over all kingdoms, and that Jesus puts every enemy under his feet. It does not say that America exists forever as a blessed nation simply because it's America. And if our nation defies God to his face, if we continue to say to God, no to your ways, and if we continue to murder our own children, then we are a nation that will not last much longer. And people ask the question, do you think God's going to judge our nation? He is judging our nation. Our nation is being judged. This is judgment on our nation. Romans chapter 1, God gives them over to do what is unnatural. And the highest place of our nation says to God, we say no to you. That is judgment. Judgment follows a course in scripture. First, God gives people over to their sin. Then God sends prophets. These prophets speak to the culture about God's truth, and they speak to the culture about peace and mercy and forgiveness. And if the world does not respond, the scriptures show us clearly, then God does respond. And we as Christians have to know something, that though as Christians we will never experience God's wrath, or condemnation, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It does not mean, as Christians, that we will not experience what God does in the world to bring about His glory. And as Christians, I want to say this from the start. We have this very specific mission in the world to preach the gospel to preach the gospel, that is our call, to lay our lives down because we love the lost. People might say, but, but Jeff, why are you picking on this one issue? Let me just say something. If there was a movement in our world that was advocating for murder at will, if there was a movement in the world that said, hey, we want the world to accept murder at will and just to kill people, innocent people at will, I would be equally against that movement. Oh, wait a second, we are. You see, brothers and sisters, the reason we have to respond and we have to take time as a corporate body to repent before God of our indifference and to come together to have a consistent message is because this issue has been thrust upon God's church. That's why we have to respond. And we have to say something as Christians to ourselves. Do we love ourselves and our comfort so much that we are unwilling to lay our lives down for the lost? If we don't say something as Christians to the world around us, it just shows something about us and how we feel about the world, hatred. Do we feel as though homosexuality is some special sin that we just think is icky? No. But let me just say this, I know people who were in that lifestyle that have been redeemed by God's grace out of it. And my desire is this, that all thieves would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. All liars would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. All adulterers would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And all those who identify as homosexual would come to know Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And they would experience his redemption, and they would experience his transformation. That is our hope. Let me just say something that needs to be said about Sodom. Genesis chapter 13 verses 12 through 13, Abraham and Lot have to separate. And and if you read that text, go to it later, you'll see that as Lot goes his way and Abraham goes his, you see something very important. It's a little line that's sort of just kind of thrown in from our perspective. And it basically says that the men of Sodom were notoriously wicked. Sodom had a reputation. And it says specifically in Genesis chapter 13 that it was the men of Sodom that were notoriously wicked. Now go to your Bibles quickly to Genesis chapter 19. I want to show you something that becomes a theme in Scripture that you have to grapple with as Christians. Genesis chapter 19. And Genesis chapter 19, Verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom. This is where the angels are coming to determine whether or not they're going to bring God's judgment. In the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. It shows that he had a particularly high place in the town. He was known. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may arise up early and go on your way. Listen, Lot has these angelic messengers come to him in the city gates, and he is so worried about their safety in this town, which is notoriously wicked, that he basically pleads with them, don't go to the center of the city to hang out. It's too dangerous for you. Come to my house, I'll take care of you. And you gotta go first thing in the morning. He knew what these men would do to these angels. And so they say, no, we will spend the night in the town square, but he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And as he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate, now watch closely, verse four. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Let's notice that, the, that Moses records for us, it was the men of the city, both young and old, the men specifically, all were coming in the city, and they're pressing in on this house. Watch this. And they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. They weren't like, hey, we want to get to know these guys and hang out and, you know, be buds, brosifs, right? They want to know them, which is a biblical way of describing sexual union. Adam knew Eve. In this case, they say we want to know them. Proof that it is speaking of sexual relationships is it says this, verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, watch this, do not act so wickedly. Notice something. They didn't do anything yet. He calls, listen, their desire wicked. And he says... Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. There's the proof that it's speaking of sexual relationship, because he's offering, what an awful father, his daughters to these men. Now, let me say as a side note, that is not Christian. (laughs) That is an awful father. Shame on him. But he offers his own daughters to these men. Now, watch. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. For they have come under the shelter of my roof, and this day, when you had a guest come to your house, it was seen as your responsibility to care for them. It was a very important cultural thing. If somebody came to you for sanctuary and for hospitality, you took care of them. So he says, these guys are my responsibility, I am responsible for what happens to them, so you can have my daughters. Again, what a wicked thing for a father to say. But he said it. Now watch. But they said, verse 9, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the, the, the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they, that's the angels, struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house. Watch this, both small and great. Now watch this. What would you do if, re- if you were in the middle of some sort of pursuit of sin? You know what I'm talking about? Has ever happened to you? You know, you know you're going to sin. You have some evil desire you're going to act on, or you're something you're going to say. What would you do if, in the midst of like a pursuit of some sort of a sinful thing, all of a sudden you got struck blind? <laughs> what would you do? I know what I would do. I would tear my clothes and sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> I'd be like, listen, serious business, right? I'm blind. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Blind, out of nowhere, blind. These guys press in the house, they want to rape these men. And they're struck blind. And this sin is so wrapped up around their heart that look what happens. They struck with blindness, verse 11, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. They so wanted to satisfy their lust that even when they were struck with blindness, they are clamoring and groping for the door to get these men. Now, why do I point this out? I want to point something out to you. The issue of Sodom, the history of Sodom, became after this point a symbol, a catch word in Scripture to to actually define something as wicked sexually. So Scripture then, after this event, that becomes now a symbol for the rest of the Bible. So for example, you've got the creation week. You've got six days of creation, seventh day of rest. The week of the creation week becomes a symbol now of perfection. Seven becomes a symbol of perfection because of what God did here. And in Sodom, that was such an eventful moment in God's history of redemption that Sodom itself becomes now a symbol of wickedness in Scripture. So that you begin to see in Scripture everything associated with sexual sin being called Sodom. Let me give you an example. Look at Isaiah quickly. Isaiah chapter 3. Big book in your Bible and I want you to listen closely. This is the the impending judgment called upon Judah and Jerusalem. It was coming and by the way it happened. Now listen closely. Go to your Bible to Isaiah 3. This is the promise of judgment and listen to what it says. Long after Sodom For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. Watch this. What's God going to do to bring judgment? What does he do? Famine. And watch this. The mighty men and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another and every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. What will happen now is relationships between people will become oppressive and hostile. You'll have children that are insolent and disobedient to their own parents. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because of their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Watch this, defying his glorious presence. Now watch, verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. This text, God says long after Sodom, that what you see here, these people... And I'm gonna bring judgment on. These people proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't even hide it. They're boastful of it. They're prideful in it. Their chins are up and their eyes are up. Their chest is out. They boast about their sin. They do not hide it. And they bring this evil upon themselves, God says. Jude chapter 1, verse 7. Another example of God giving us Sodom as a symbol of sin. Go to your uh, New Testament quickly. I'm going to give you these verses. It's important for you to have them as a church. Jude 1. one ver- it's one chapter anyway, so it's easy to find. Verse 7. Watch this. It says this. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Listen, one of the translations actually says that in Sodom they they pursued strange flesh. And so uh, why am I bringing this up? Listen, I'm bringing it up for a reason. Uh, Sodom became in history... An example of what God will not tolerate. An example of where God acts to bring his justice. It became an example of wickedness. It served as an example for thousands of years. And an an amazing thing, Dr. Greg Bonson had a lecture I was listening to a while back, and he was talking about how he, when in the late 70s, he wanted to address in his church the issue of homosexuality so he could arm arm those that were there with the verses they would need to reach out to this community with love and also with a consistent message. And he was a youth pastor at the time and he said that when he wanted to do this series on homosexuality to, to, to speak about it in church, that listen, in the 70s, listen, the pastor of the church called him and said, hi, we have what you want to put into the bulletin that you're doing a series on homosexuality. He says, can we not use that word? That was just in the 70s. That 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 issue was seen even then in our own culture as something that you didn't even speak about publicly in the church. And listen, since the 60s and the 70s, because as a church we have disengaged from the world and not been salty to it and not been light to it, people who are a part of this movement have been disciplined, they have been consistent, they have made a plan, and let's be honest, they were very successful. 3% of the nation, 3% of our nation identifies as homosexual at best, 3%. 3% of our nation has convinced the world that most of our nation is homosexual or bisexual or has these inclinations. What does that say about us as a church? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Christians occupy more of the population than 3%? So where's our witness? Where's our voice as a church? There are many, there are many reasons as to why this would take place in a culture that has so many Christians. I think the primary reason is eschatology, that if we believe that the worse the world gets, the better it is for us. As a matter of fact, as a result of this decision, you saw on social media a flurry of things happening. And one of the things I saw that broke my heart so many times is people posting this stuff, saying things like, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, Jesus. That is the greatest act of hatred for your neighbor. What does it say? It says that I'm forgiven, I'm saved, I have peace with God, to hell with my neighbor. When we cry out for God to rescue us from a wicked culture, it shows nothing but indifference and hatred for neighbor. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, John 17, he says this, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus tells his people to pray this, your name be holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them and doing what? Teaching them to obey. obey. That's the mission of the church. We're supposed to be as Christians looking at a situation like this saying, there is a whole community that needs Jesus. There are people that need to be forgiven and saved. They need the gospel. They need new hearts. They need new minds. They need to be brought to Christ under His Lordship and forgiven. They need to experience the life that I've experienced. We can't think in terms of escape. It means I hate my neighbor. Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor. This is the greatest commandments. And in the Bible, God has spoken. If you look in your text of Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5, God commands his people not to walk in unrighteousness like the surrounding nations. I'm going to do this part quickly. I'm going to skip a few things I had planned, but I, I want you to hear this. In Leviticus Chapter 18, go there in your Bibles quickly, Leviticus 18, I want you to see what God has to say when he speaks to this issue. Luke 8, sorry, Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they did in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Listen, if a person does them, he shall live by them I am the Lord and then God begins to describe harmonious relationships father not with daughter mother not with son not with aunt uncle grandfather and God tells us what watch this should be obvious to all of us He you should not do these things and then God in Leviticus 18 verses 20 through 28 let me start in verse 20, sorry, 20, just verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. No adultery. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of the Lord your God, or God, I am the Lord. You shall not, li- you, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is Toeva, an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to any animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Now watch what God says here. This is very, very critical. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. What did God say? It's for these very things that he was having all the surrounding nations driven out. Can I ask you a question as a Christian who loves Christ and stands under his grace? Do you believe that God's standards have changed? Do you believe that God in the new covenant is no longer concerned with justice, righteousness, and holiness in this world? I would say this, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because Christ has ascended, he is more concerned than ever. Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. God calls these relationships an abomination. Now, brothers and sisters, let me admit to something. There is more in that text than homosexual relationships. And we need to acknowledge that. And let me be the first to say this. If there is ever a national movement that wants to cram the idea of adultery down our throat as a holy thing, I promise before God to fight it. But we have this now as Christians facing us in our culture, and we have to address it. Now I want to point you to two things quickly. In Leviticus chapter 18 and Romans chapter 1, God tells us something about these things. God says this, listen. He so values women that he says this in his word. You rape somebody, you've given up the right to live. Think about that. Which culture values women more, ours or God's? Women to God are so valuable, if you rape them, you've forfeited your right to live. If you murder somebody... In cold blood, God says, you forfeited your right to live, justice must be done. God's very concerned with life and value and justice. God says in his law, if you steal from somebody, you pay it back. You make it harmonious, you make it right. And God says about adultery that it is one of the greatest sins because it's a destruction of the human family. Adultery destroys the human family. And God, in His word, always afforded mercy. If somebody committed adultery, the victim was allowed to say, I have mercy, I'm going to let you go, I'm going to forgive you. God always said He desired mercy. But what did God say was the standard of justice in His law if somebody would violate the family in that way? He says, well, the standard is even the death penalty. That's how God says He feels about the family and husband and wife relationships and the kids. There's never such a thing as treason against the government in God's law, but there was such a thing as treason against the family. And in God's word, he says same thing. If there is flagrant, open, public acts of homosexuality that are unrepented of, there were issues in God's law where there could be even exile or death. We need to come to grips with that as Christians. It's what God's law says. Does that mean that a church wants to go around clubbing and exiling and killing homosexuals? By no means. It does show us God's standard, though, and how God feels about this sin. So watch this. There was a death penalty in God's law for this. Now watch Romans chapter one. What does it say at the end of Romans one? Think about it. They switch God for idols. They engage in this. They do what's against nature. And it says this in Romans one, that although people know That those who do these things are worthy of death. It says they not only do them, but they give hearty (laughs) approval to those who do. They applaud them who do. Brothers and sisters, can I say something very hard to you right now that I have to confess to you? It's very hard for me to say. I just want to confess it to you. I'm a human being, I struggle with my own particular sins as a Christian. I struggle as a pastor at times. I have to have moments where I have to ask God for help. And this is one of those moments. In God's law, he says, in his law, the civil magistrate has the responsibility. If somebody engages in this sort of act, public, flagrant, unrepentant sin, There was the option of exile, or God says it was such a violation of his order, there was even the death penalty. God says that was a death penalty issue. In Romans 1, Paul says in the New Testament, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, in the New Testament, Paul says those who do these things are worthy of death. What does that mean? How does God feel about this particular sin? Now let me ask you a question. If God says in his law the standard is death for these things, and if we publicly embrace it, what does that mean for our nation? If we know God's standards, then that means that God will act as judge over our nation. And if our nation is unrepentant in this way, and we do not come into the nation with a communicated gospel that is faithful and true, what does it mean? about our nation. How does God act as judge? He gives nations clearly the death penalty. Now, this is a hard thing to talk about, isn't it? I'll confess it. I'll confess it as a pastor. It's a hard thing to talk about, and you don't hear this a lot in our culture, and let me just say this. Perhaps the reason we're in the place we are today as Christians is because we don't talk about this in our churches One of the most disheartening things for me over the last couple of days as a minister of the gospel who's a sinner who only stands under God's grace is to watch men who occupy our pulpits, who are so-called Christian authorities in our nation, to watch men who occupy this sacred place act in indifference to this issue. We have a responsibility Dr. Walter Martin said this, you have to be willing to be hated by the very people you love and are trying to reach. Let me just say this quickly. Objections. I'll go through them fast. One, people in our culture that want to avoid God's clear, communicated message here will say this. Well, wait a minute. How come you've just picked homosexuality? How come you still eat shellfish and bacon and you have mixed fibers? See, you're being inconsistent. You're being a cafeteria Christian. You're just just picking and choosing what you want to believe. That challenge demonstrates something. The person making it has never read their Bible. Very simple. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Paul clearly defines for us that the holiness code, which ultimately pointed to Jesus, that wall of commandments that separated Jew from Gentile for a purpose to display God's holiness and to pave the way for the Messiah to show who he was, that wall of commandments in the holiness code is done away with because Christ the substance is here. So eat up. But... What we know is very clear in Scripture is that God has defined what harmonious sexual relationships are. How about this objection? Don't judge, lest you be judged. Have you heard that one? Yes. Well, let's quote Paul Washer. Don't twist Scripture, lest you be like Satan. <laughs> How about this? Don't judge, ask the person. Is child molestation wrong? What do they say? Yes. Tell them, stop judging. (laughs) Is murder wrong? Yes. Stop judging. Is rape wrong? Yes. Stop judging. Well, of course we can judge on those issues. Ah. So we can judge with righteous judgments. So here's the question. By what standard... Do we judge? And the Bible is clear in John 7, 24. Do not judge by mere appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Christians are commanded to judge according to Scripture. Question, should I love my neighbor or beat my neighbor? Isn't the answer obvious? Boy, I hope so, right? But how do I know I should love my neighbor and not beat them? How do I know? because Christ has spoken amen that's how I know and so you need to bring that across to those who are asking this question how about this third objection we're commanded now in the new testament to love our neighbor here's the only commandments Jesus gave and I go give them to me because I want them they'll say he just says these two things you're to love God and you're to love your neighbor I go excellent that's what I wanted to hear Love God and love your neighbor. That's the two greatest commandments. They say that's all, God, that's all God asks of us, love God, love neighbor. Excellent, because Jesus says this, that all the law and the prophets are built upon love for God, love for neighbor. That's wonderful. You just gave me the entire law and prophets. Thank you. No, but we need to point this out. Somebody will say, Jesus just commanded you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-nine: 39, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what Jesus calls you to do. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Here's what you ask your friend who's asking that question. Do you know what Jesus is quoting from? Do you know that Jesus was quoting from something when he said that? Jesus was quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus 19, it says, you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That chapter comes on the heels of God's discussion about him driving out the nations because they practice these immoral things. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's from Leviticus. Can I have Leviticus? In Leviticus, Jesus tells us what is harmonious sexual relationships. If somebody says to you, Jesus commands you to love your neighbor as you love yourself, ask them, so you're a fan of Leviticus? You like that book? Because God has more to say in that book than that. Number four, we should be able to marry whomever we want. We should want love to win. And I want to say this, I'm all for love winning. And love did win on a cross 2,000 years ago. And love won when it conquered death and sin at a cross. But let me say something we are not as Christians to love things that Jesus died for. So listen closely. When someone says we should be able to marry whomever he wants, we ask these questions How about the pederast? How about polygamy? How about polyamory? What's magic about two? Why not two men and three women? What about two sisters? What about a mom and her son? What about Misty Atkinson, California woman? Listen, Misty Atkinson, 32, of Nice, Entered her plea Tuesday before Napa County Superior Court Judge Ray Gudiagni in response to charges of incest, oral copulation with a minor, contact with a minor for sexual offense and sending harmful matter to the teen. Authorities arrested Misty Atkinson in March after they found her in a hotel room with her biological 16-year-old son. According to Napa police, they found videos on the boy's phone that showed Atkinson performing with the teen. She's also accused of sending sexually explicit images to the boy electronically. Uh, Misty Atkinson's defense, she has genetic attraction disorder. Is Misty Atkinson allowed to love whomever she wants? And if you say no, then I ask you, by what standard? People say you should love your neighbor. I say talk to John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist love his neighbors in Matthew 3 when he said to the Pharisees of his day, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath about to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Did Jesus love his neighbors in Matthew 7 where he tells them many will come to him in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, but we did this and we did that. And He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Did Paul love his neighbor in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Last verse, guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When Paul says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Was Paul not loving his neighbor? Of course he was love does something love listen then come with me here this is we're almost done here you gotta listen closely love is not what our culture says that it is love is not some mere emotion sort of an icky gooey uh, emotion that's fleeting that feeling is fleeting love is an action love does something love is patient love is kind Love hopes all things, believes all things. Love never fails. Love is an action. And love, as an action for neighbor, sees them going off a cliff and runs after them to lay the life down in their place. To sacrifice your comfort, your reputation for the sake of the other person is the greatest act of love that you can demonstrate. I am not calling for people to have a fetish with this issue. Brothers and sisters, we have so many things to deal with in our world, but right now we need to talk about this. I'm calling us to care enough about those around us that we actually speak the truth to them. I'm calling us to love neighbor enough to preach the gospel. Let me say something very important that needs to be said, listen, Jesus is the king. Stop for a second. Don't let that be just a simple Christian glib sort of slogan. Listen, Jesus is the king. He brought his kingdom on time and as planned. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the reigning king over the rulers of the earth. And in Psalm chapter 2, the father already said to the son, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. I know Jesus didn't forget to ask because he told us to go get them. Amen? And Jesus says, or the, the Father says in Psalm 2, to the kings of the earth, this is current, this is today, this is to this guy. The Father says to the leader of our nation, he says to him, obey the Son, or you'll perish when his wrath is kindled. That is current. And let me say this, we have hope. Jesus I know the story, wins. He wins. He never loses. 1st Corinthians 15 all of history is going a direction Jesus is reigning now Paul says and he will reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet after that the last enemy is death and then Jesus comes back in final victory for the resurrection and he delivers the kingdom to the father as a completed thing after everything is made subject to him which means this this enemy that God has raised up in our generation God has raised it up for the purpose of putting it down to display his glory That's the truth about what's happening now. Romans chapter 9, God says about Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up in order to display my power in you. Abortion, God has raised up, allowed to happen in his world, this wicked thing, because he's going to show his victory over it. This, God has allowed to be raised up to ignite his church once again, to bring the light of the gospel into our culture once again. And he raises up this enemy to defeat it, brothers and sisters. This will not thwart God or his purposes. Jesus wins. That's the truth of God. And what is our call as Christians? Faithfulness, trust, truth, love. You must preach the gospel. You must sacrifice everything. Dr. Michael Brown was on our show recently and he said something that was compelling. He said in foreign nations, Christians are worried about losing their heads because of the gospel. In America, we're worried about being unfriended on Facebook. (laughs) Give me a break. Wake up, brothers and sisters. We got freedom because of the gospel. Freedom begets prosperity. And then the daughter ate the mother. We're losing it all now because of our witness. It's us, this isn't solved politically. We don't win this by politics. We've already got a messiah, we don't need another one. 2016 is another year for another sinner to take their place. And we've got a king forever that occupies the space of authority for good. No one's taking his spot. But we don't solve this politically, we solve it with the gospel. And I saw something this week that blessed my heart. I have been pleading with God for years. God, raise your church up. Do something, God. Please wake us up. Bring us out of our slumber. Allow us to live sacrificially. Stop with the bubble gum and the Disneyland's and the, the fluffy messages in our churches. Bring the gospel once again to the forefront. I've been pleading with God. God, raise up your church. How come no one's saying anything? How come no one's doing anything? God, do something. And this week I saw something to bless my life. I saw for the first time in a long time Christians standing up and saying something. I saw Christians all over social media saying no to this. Yes to God. Christ has all authority. You need to know the gospel. I saw post after post after post of Christians preaching to their friends who embrace this lifestyle saying I love you, but you need to know the truth. And I say this, praise God. Praise God that God allows these things to raise up at a particular time in our lives. To ignite once again fire in his people life in his people god always changes history brothers and sisters through the remnants always it happened with 11 very confused apostles 2000 years ago while their messiah ascended and he told them to go get the nations yeah right <laughs> and then all the nations the christians would come in St. Patrick, Ireland, I'll take Ireland, Jesus. John Knox in Scotland, he said this to Scotland, God, Scotland or I die. And before he died, or when he died, Scotland's under the feet of Jesus so that even their government acknowledged him as Lord. So I say this to our church, this small little rabble that we are. I say this to us who are planted here with one another, for God's purposes. We're in this nation. America is not the kingdom of God. We're in the kingdom of God. I say this to our church. America or we die. God, give us this nation for Christ or we die. We have to live consistently with that message, brothers and sisters. The days ahead of us, let me say this. I'm not a prophet, but I can tell which way way the wind's blowing. The days ahead of us are hard hard brothers and sisters you need to brace yourself as a christian and know that god is faithful he is true he is sovereign but you need to know if you're going to be an effective witness for christ you have got to prepare your heart before god to be faithful and to love others enough to do something we send missionaries to other countries because we have to you're a missionary here jesus wants this place under his feet for his glory, and he uses us to do it. Let's pray. God, please bless our church and our witness. God, bring the light of the gospel into this world. Once again, please, Lord, save. Be mighty before the eyes of the world. God, allow us as a church to be humble, to love neighbor enough to tell the truth. Allow us to be gracious and give us your message of good news. Let repentance and faith be on our lips and give us the strength to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.